What happens when you put two experts behind mics to match wits on the current state of financial services, the economy, investments, and more? From the American College of Financial Services, this is Wealth Managed. Welcome to Wealth Managed. I'm Michael Finca. I'm a professor of wealth management at the American College. And I'm David Blanchett, head of retirement research at PGM, which is the investment management group of Prudential. David, we just had an article published in the Journal of Financial Planning, where we look at how people research mutual funds. When they go online and they're looking for information about mutual funds, what kind of things do they look for? And what we did was we looked at it by advisor channel. So if you're a broker, what kind of information do you look for? If you're dual registered, what do you look for? If you're an RAA, do you look for different characteristics of a mutual fund? And, and what did we find? Well, first, I'm sure that our listeners are going to be dying to find this article. So we should tell them where to find it. The article is called Does Advisor Channel Influence Passive Fund Choice? Published in the April uh, 2022 Journal of Financial Planning. That being said, it was an interesting analysis because what we had right is we had, we had data on kind of the, the factors that influence the decisions advisors make in terms of fund selection, investment strategy selection for their clients. And we found some pretty interesting things, especially along the lines of um, advisor channels. So, you know, in theory, right, if everyone, you know, learns from the same material, maybe gets paid the same way, we would think that everyone builds the same portfolios and has the same preferences. But there are some very interesting differences in the analysis, again, based upon kind of whether the advisor identifies as being a part of a broker-dealer, dual-registered, or an RIA. Um, Michael, do you want to get into those key findings? Yeah, let's, let's take a step back, because I always like to start with the literature review. So the literature review of this article is actually, I thought, really interesting. There's some things that I didn't know that I figured out when I was doing, when I was looking at some of the related literature. Now, if we, if we look at the history of these channels, if you're a broker, it's your job to sell an investment like a mutual fund. So you need to position the mutual fund for a client in a way that they will be attracted to the idea of investing in it. And it's actually very similar to the market for pharmaceuticals in that pharmaceutical companies will provide information about the drug and the, the doctor will then take this, they'll go to a conference, they'll hear information about a drug, They'll go back to a client, they'll make the recommendation about whether they should take the drug. Now, the research finds that doctors who have gotten this sort of information from a pharmaceutical company actually hold opinions that are not consistent with objective scientific reality. That in many cases, doctors, even though they don't think they're biased, do get biased by that slanted information, and they end up recommending drugs that are maybe not in the best interest of their patients, but they are adamant about the fact that they don't make biased recommendations. They will engage in what's known as cognitive dissonance. They will, if you, if you tell them that they're looking at the wrong things when they're recommending mutual funds, they will get emotional. They will say, well, that's not true at all. And they'll maybe try to identify some sort of idiosyncratic example of where their way of doing it is the right way of doing it. Because nobody likes to admit that we're capable of doing something that is wrong. So, you know, it's not just financial advisors, it's human nature that we respond to the way that we're trained and we're all biased. So you and I are biased by how we're compensated. It's just part of being a human being. 
Well, at least I am, David. You, you may be. No, I was going to say it's, it's not. It's not our training that biases us. It's the it's the compensation that really is the bias. I think that's how you kind of create <laughs> the 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 lens around what you're doing. Because to your point, like no one wants to think they're doing a bad job necessarily. I'm sure some folks do, but I think that can have a a disproportionate impact on perceptions or beliefs around what is what, for example, is best for a client. You know, and there was just a conversation about this on advisor perspectives, uh, where someone had the gall to suggest that perhaps there were pieces of information that were not useful when selecting mutual funds that very often people use. And it became not necessarily an argument about data, but it was an argument that was filled with emotion. So it, it, we have to, I think, as professionals, acknowledge that we are susceptible to this and then try to minimize this extent to which we are motivated by evidence that is not necessarily based on objective reality. Now, objective reality, David, take us through the research in finance on how you pick mutual funds. How do you pick mutual funds? It's a difficult process. I think that, that the only thing, well, like a few things are are always significant, right? So Expense ratio, for example, is is almost always significant. So funds that have lower expense ratios, on average, outperform those with higher expense ratios. Other things can matter too, things like turnover. You know, you can you can often find a little bit of evidence with historical long-term performance. But I mean, like without a doubt, like the the thing that matters is selecting funds that cost less. That doesn't necessarily mean you have to go go index funds, but I think the key is you have to consider expense ratio when selecting funds. It should be a, a key part of the decision process. And you know, one thing that we found in the research, for example, is, is that different types of, of advisors in particular view expense ratio differently, right? So, you know, for better or for worse, you know, RAAs were far more likely to consider expense ratio when selecting investments than advisors who worked at broker dealers. And, you know, it's, again, it's, it's, there's a lot of that's written, you know, hundred billion, it's estimated that a hundred billion dollars is spent chasing about $15 billion worth of alpha in the active fund market. And we, you know, there's, there's a very clear difference in perspective among those who think that we should train financial advisors to select individual mutual funds, whether that's a source of value or whether investments like mutual funds and ETFs should be viewed as a tool, which is part of a larger investment plan. And that the tools, you know, it doesn't, you, you shouldn't waste your time too much choosing a tool that is going to generate investment alpha because it's so elusive. And if anything, people tend to lose alpha by trying to get fancy and that your actual sources of value, and you've done some research on this, what are the primary ways, the research-based ways that an investment advisor can provide value? Well, I think that, the, I mean, advisors exist to help their clients accomplish financial goals, right? That's like their fundamental purpose. And so I think that, you know, the portfolio stuff is really, really important. And so, and I think the behavioral stuff is, is just as much or more important. And so, you know, somehow convincing a client to be in a portfolio and stick with it that's worth a ton. I think that, that, that at the end of the day, though, I think that, that too often advisors focus on, I'm going to build a portfolio that is going to outperform some benchmark and ignore the other stuff like helping someone save when they retire, when do they claim social security, how much do they spend, that can actually drive a lot more value for that relationship. 
Well, and paying attention to things like taxation. So right. that that's probably the easiest way to generate alpha, far easier than trying to pick the right active mutual fund. Uh, because it's, it's really a risk. It's like you're taking a risk that this fund manager is going to be able to outperform something with a lower expense ratio. And on average, they don't. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. Learn how a goal-based approach redefines 21st century investment with our Wealth Management Certified Professional designation. Bring your value to a new level at theamericancollege.edu slash WMCP. The American College Center for Women in Financial Services is building our community, and we want to share stories of success with you. I'm Lindsay Lewis, the host of the Women Working in Wealth podcast. Join us as we speak with women from all across the industry to explore career opportunities, dispel myths, and see how personal journeys lead to achieving career goals. Listen to all the episodes at theamericancollege.edu forward slash podcasts. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review. Together, we can break the bias. Welcome back. Let's continue where we left off. One of the things that really struck me, David, was even among RIAs, the amount of money that's invested by RIAs in Kathy Wood's ARC fund, like that is, that's telling me that people are return chasing. And we know that return chasing in particular is a harmful activity because oftentimes what it leads to is overinvestment in hot sectors that are overvalued. So if you look at, you know, the, the, the top ARC holdings, they're, they're going to be those high sentiment stocks that recently have consistently underperformed. And that's, it's not a new story. It happens over and over again, that if you have these investments or investment strategies that, that track short-term returns, they tend to outperform in the future because they do get overvalued. High sentiment stocks get, get overvalued, low volatility, low beta stocks tend to outperform, but that's, that's the wrong way to invest. It's, it's almost like, there, there's two things like, are you, are you losing your expense ratio because you're paying more or are you even doing worse than that by losing alpha on those investments, those actively managed investments that have recently outperformed? And I think there's a lot of evidence that that happens. So how do we retrain advisors to not focus so much on things like recent performance? I mean, I, I don't know. I think that, that, you know, from my perspective, there's such a disparity in the quality of advisors out there in terms of how they're compensated, the advice they give, the strategies they recommend. It, I mean, I, to use a very technical term, it's kind of a hot mess. I think that what we need though is just to emphasize the things that matter, right? I, I, I mean, you know, it's funny, you and I have done so much research on the economic benefits of annuities, but it's kind of the behavioral stuff that I think actually really matters the most for people. And so, you know, I, I think you, you need to do things that get people excited about investing that can keep them invested, right? And, and maybe that means it's, it's maybe, it, maybe it even means crypto for a small slug of their portfolio. I'm not, I'm not recommending people do that, but I, I want people to stay engaged and, and to feel like they're, they're, they're doing something that they can get excited about. But that being said, to your earlier points, there are some very clear things that advisors should focus on. And this new research suggests that, that the level at which they do varies by effectively like how they're compensated. And so I think that there's different paths forward here. What do you think we should do? Well, I, I want to point out 
a big finding of our study, which we haven't talked about, which is related to what you've just discussed, which is that dual registrants, so those who are regulated as fiduciaries when they're making investment recommendations, they're charging an asset under management fee, they don't behave any different than brokers in many cases because they were trained as brokers. They were trained to look at what we call these non-salient fund characteristics that don't predict future returns. But then when they become a registered investment advisor, then they continue to engage in some of these practices. And I think one of the things we argue for is that there's a, there's a problem here where they need to be trained differently. Once they start moving from a, a brokerage framework to an RIA framework, it's their job to make recommendations that are in the best interest of the client, but they carry all of this baggage with them that's biasing their, their perceptions of how to, you know, their source of value and how to choose investments for a client. And that I think is something that's going to need to change because those dual registrants really dominate the market for investable assets that they're, they're managing a lot of people's wealth and they need to probably reframe the education and their companies need to reframe the education for them. So, you know, when I look at the results, you know, I see dual registrants as like, as like moderately reformed people that work at broker dealers. Like it's true that like the differences weren't statistically significant, but they, like, they were a little bit better. Like if you look at the metrics in the piece, you know, if you've got broker dealers over here and REOs over here, they definitely were it directionally towards RAAs, but clearly not making the same type of decision. So I think it's, maybe you could argue that it's progress, but it clearly isn't kind of the extent you see for the more kind of pure RAH. And I would encourage many of those companies that are seeing a transition of brokers into the RAA space to consider maybe a, a reframing of how they're educated. And it can be difficult, again, because a lot of people have very emotional opinions, but there is objective reality. And then there is people's baggage that they're carrying around with them. And they can be two very different things. So, Michael, like, how do you think the, the, the industry, the advisors, et cetera, should take this research? Like, what, what is the kind of path forward for the industry? You know, I mean, first of all, we have talked about this before, that there is this shocking disconnect between the way that finance academics think about security selection and investing in general, and then the way that the industry is often trained to do it. So if you submit an article that comes up with a concept for how to choose mutual funds that's, that's going to generate alpha, you are subject to an enormous amount of criticism because there is so much evidence that markets are efficient and then it's almost impossible to consistently generate alpha. On the other hand, if you look at the investment industry, it's almost like you know alpha exists everywhere and it's just a matter of picking it off trees. But you know, I, I think we know from looking at the data that that's not actually the case. It's more about marketing than it is about reality. So I, I, what I would like the industry to do is to start acknowledging more of the reality from the scientific research and then identifying the ways that advisors can truly provide value in making investments in helping them understand how they provide value as opposed to simply training them to do something that is, yeah, we all know is not necessarily providing value to clients. I agree. All right. On that note, thank you everyone for joining us for this episode of Wealth Managed. I'm Michael Finca. I'm David Blanchett. See y'all later. For more episodes and shows, visit theamericancollege.edu slash podcasts. Wealth Managed is a production of the American College of Financial Services. 